Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einsteiner Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einsteiner Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. You are listening to 3RRR. It is time for an hour of science, and I have some of my uh, favorite uh, co-hosts on the line with me. I'm Dr. Shane, by the way, if we haven't met before. On the line is uh, Dr. Lauren. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Great to see you. Coming live to us from your closet once again. Very I was, good. I was, joke, I was joking this morning, Dr. Shane. I'm, I'm gradually cleaning my closet over the weeks just so – because I was very embarrassed the first time I did this. <laughs> so we're getting there. We're getting time. there. You're making progress, I think. I can see it in the background. I'm making progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good morning, Anu. How are you going? Hi, Shane. How are you? Good to be back. Good to see you. And we have Gracie on the line all the way from Texas. How's it going over there, Gracie, on a Saturday night? Great, Shane. Thanks for having me. How are you all doing? We're doing good. Now, we're going to jump into some science news, folks. We've got a fairly big show today, actually. We've got uh, Tim Costello coming on the line a little bit later to talk about Australia's need to vaccinate the world. And uh, after that, Grace is going to be uh, doing part two of her exploration of the deep sea, weird weird creatures that we find down there, which will be fun as well. We're going to start off with some news, though. Uh, Dr. Lauren, do you want to start? Yeah, I'd love to, Dr. Shane. So I've been learning about Earthshine this week. So I think a lot of our listeners would know about moonshine. So obviously the fact that the moon glows is not because the moon makes its own light, of course, but it's reflecting the sunlight that hits it. And I was reading about this concept of Earthshine, which is very beautiful and something we don't really think about. And that's because obviously the light that hits Earth from the sun is also reflected back off. And normally about 30% of the incident light that hits Earth is reflected back. And if you were on the moon, you could actually see that light. And obviously the Earth glows for people that or people or objects that are on the moon. And this study that's just come out recently is actually looking at the rate of reflectivity from the Earth and how that's changing over time. And unfortunately, it is changing and unfortunately, it is linked to global warming and Mm. to the changes that are happening to our planet. And so what they've actually done is looked at data over 200, sorry, 200, over 20 years. um, And they've been able to measure the reflectivity from Earth from the moon. So they've um, been able to look at some different parameters and different ways of measuring that. And what they've found is that from 1998 to 2017, Earth's reflectance declined by about 0.5%. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge amount, but it actually is because it's meaning that potentially our global warming effect is sort of doubling over that time period. So what, what, how this is actually happening is that the decrease in reflectivity is because of things that are changing on Earth. And the main ones are that we've got less cloud cover because of warmer temperatures, there's actually less low-altitude cloud over our oceans in particular. And so that's exposing more of the darker-coloured ocean water. And so obviously darker colours you know, absorb more than reflect, and that's ha- helping to, to um, exacerbate this effect. The other thing that's happening, as we all well know, is that there's been a significant decline in sea ice mm. and in ice over, over obviously, our, our poles. And so this increase in, in darkness of our Earth, for, for want of a better term, 
is meaning that the reflectivity going back to the moon is decreasing as well. And it's a bit of a vicious cycle. So as um, Earth absorbs more radiation from the sun, this is then warming our climate more, which is then melting our ice and obviously making this worse and worse. Yeah, it's not good. I imagine too, as the um, level of the ocean changes somewhat, the um, actual surface area taken up by the ocean as viewed from space would be greater as well. Exactly, exactly. And one of the interesting things as well that I was reading in this study is is one of these, you know, it's a a good thing that's happened in our society. So obviously we've got a lot better at air pollution. Mm. So there's less um, air pollution in in our atmosphere now. But that's actually unfortunately also adding to this because those pollutants used to scatter sunlight back into space. And unfortunately now that's also coming into our atmosphere. Busy little creatures, aren't we? Really, we are, and so look, it's a, it's a quite a, another depressing sort of study. But um, the authors were pretty, um, you know, clear about the fact that this is not, you know, definitely the trend. So this may just be a blip. They're not one hundred percent sure yet, but it's something we need to monitor mm. carefully. Yep. The other really cool thing about this study is, even though it was a twenty-year study, they had to have absolutely perfect conditions to take the measurements. So over 20 years, they actually only had 800 measurement points oh, wow. because it needed to be the exact right phase of the moon, the exact amount of cloud cover, all of those sorts of things. And so they, they obviously want to look at this in mm. some more depth in the future. Yeah, good stuff. Anu, I'm sure you're going to be talking about space. What have you got for us? Absolutely. I mean, we're going to be talking about the moon. I think we were just talking earlier, Shane, about how the space launch system is now sitting on the pad. Is that what you're saying? Um, yeah. Artemis One. Yeah. The, yep. They put the the rockets put together. So you know they call the stack. You know where they stack the various pieces because you know you're going to turf some of them as you head up. You know the bits you don't need as the fuel gets emptied, but it's all stacked yep. up and ready to go for a launch in Feb, which will be you know like a repeat of um, Apollo Eight when we first uh, went around the moon and orbited the moon. So cool stuff. Yeah, and that's an uncrewed mission. So we're looking forward to the human crewed mission, which will hopefully happen um, in, in the next, hopefully 2024, I think it was, mm. the next one. So um, this year, though, has been absolutely insane, massive leaps for space, um, starting off with, um, I guess, more civilians entering space. We've had Inspiration 4, which happened, I think, about a couple of, a month ago, a month or two ago, um, which was to raise funds for St. Jude's Hospital. And it involved four civilians who went up and um, did a suborbital flight, and they did do science on board that mission. And it, it also saw um, history made by the person with the first prosthetic in space, um, shortly followed by um, a Russian actor who flew aboard the Soyuz, Mm. Filmed aboard the ISS, which can we just remind everyone is a science lab where serious science happens, of course, and um, and then came back with the old crew, the, the crew that was already there. So they went up with the new crew, swapped over, came back with the old crew within a matter of days. They've also, of course, um, beaten the Americans who are going to be filming Mission Impossible um, there next year as well. So quite a bit of um, Hollywood movies utilising the space up there and, of course, revenue, which means that there's less, um, I guess, pressure for, you know, taxpayers to be funding that sort of stuff. Um, Mm. And, of course, more recently, as last week, we had William Shatner, Star Trek's William Shatner, uh, becoming the oldest person in space, um, flying aboard Blue Origins craft. And... For space news a little bit more closer to home now, um, we've now had Australia who's going to be providing a rover to as part of the Moon to Mars initiative. So they're providing a rover to go to the moon as early as 2026. 
Now, good news for the Australian science and engineering community. We're actually hoping to, of course, showcase a lot of these robotic um, I suppose, skill sets that we have here in Australia. And so what that means is that we'll probably, we'll probably be able to retain a lot of those engineers and scientists here in Australia who can contribute to NASA's missions rather than having to lose a lot of our bright minds, brilliant minds to Silicon Valley and, of course, other space agencies. So if to our listeners out there who are interested in contributing to payloads, keep an eye out on the social media accounts for the Australian Space Agency I do believe they are looking for payloads to go up to the moon. And back over to you, Shane. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a couple of payloads that I wouldn't mind sending up there, but they're just people I don't like. You know, one way. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, I think I, I, w- I would hope that if we do this rover, that when the world sees it, they look at it and go, yeah, that's from Australia. And you can even tell. You know, there's got to be something yeah. about it that says this is, you know, it's like an episode of the Leyland Brothers, and I'm sorry to anyone under the age of 45 who doesn't know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, you know, it needs to be something that's uniquely Australian, I think. I want to see something that... So like uh, carrying a surfboard, do you think, Dr. Shane? Just a surfboard on its side, a yeah. bit of zinc on its nose? Or- Maybe a bit of zinc on the nose, something, yeah, something yeah, that nice. just says, you know, this is, this is an Australian rover, that's clear. Why did they put that on it? That seems useless, because that's the sort of thing we would probably do. <laughs> I think that would be um, yeah, appropriate. First, first ever surfboard on the moon. Yeah, maybe. Perfect, perfect. perfect. Well, we'll we'll see. Uh, something tells me that I won't get my dream coming true there, but uh, we'll see. Gracie, what's uh, what's news at your end? Yes, yeah, so space is really difficult to follow, uh, but researchers in Phoenix, Arizona, have found a way to lower temperatures on their roads that can contribute to climate change. Um, and so they can do this by applying kind of a reflective gray material to the black asphalt on the road. And yeah. this actually lowered temperatures 10 to 12 degrees Fahrenheit, or six or so degrees Celsius per day. Um, and for you Australians that have never been to Phoenix, Arizona, temperatures can get up to yeah, 110 degrees Fahrenheit in the summer. Uh, So it's widely known as being kind of this deadly hot desert. Um, And so road temps in Phoenix can actually rise to 180 degrees Fahrenheit on a hot day, which then, of course, gets absorbed by the asphalt road for hours and then giving higher temperatures at night Mm. and then all into the morning where it starts all over again. So it's kind of this endless cycle that feeds on each other. Uh, But they're currently looking into seeing how it holds up in other weather conditions right now. Yeah, that'd be cool. It's interesting, I think, one of the areas where um, we don't think about this often, but similar technology would be useful is in train tracks, because you often mm-hmm. see right. train tracks buckling and, and even breaking, and, and in some cases causing you know monstrous delays, as you know that's ex- that's sort of seen. And there's just um, there's so much absorption absorption of heat in some of these scenarios. It's phenomenal. I, I yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes, yeah, I'd love to do some sort of episode on that sometime about, uh, you know, just like uh, basically building materials that can absorb heat um, in order to kind of help reduce climate change, uh, like on buildings and on roads and yeah, I think there's like and I think there's significant opportunity there to really change the just the, the mindset around these things being good at sort of redistributing water, which I think they generally are. You know, they're good at they're built to distribute water off the roads fairly quickly, but they're not. Um, they're certainly not sort of designed to absorb heat in any way, or you know, etc. So there's yeah, there's there's scope there for some really interesting technologies. And you know, what would be nice is if we just had more trees nearby. I suppose that would also help. yeah all right well we're going to take a a break for some music folks and when we come back we'll be talking about uh, how we're going to go about vaccinating the world it is a tough act but uh, we need to be doing it because if we don't it's going to come back and bite us i suspect 
So here's some tunes, and when we come back, we'll be talking to Tim Costello. Triple R. Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3RRR. On the line with me now is Reverend Tim Costello. He's the Executive Director of MICA Australia. Good morning, Tim. How are you going? Great to be with you, Shane. Uh, well, I'm doing a bit better than uh, last weekend. A little bit more freedom, just a tad. Yeah. Have you made use of the freedom yet, or are you like me and you've still just bunkered down? Well, I'm pretty much doing what I, I do. You know, the uh, the routine is getting excited about a trip to get a coffee, and I still <laughs> was doing that uh, Freedom Day. Uh, we saw uh, some family last night, uh, had them over for dinner. So, yeah, the family and uh, community stuff's kicking in a bit. Yeah, I think it was good. It's a very similar experience for me. I had my parents over, you know, for the first time in, I don't know what's been, five, six months, you lose track. But it was a, it was a joyous moment seeing my nine-year-old see his grandparents. Um, although although yeah. my I think my mother was a bit disturbed because my father got the first hug, which is not uh, usual <laughs> in that circumstance. But, yeah, I mean, a great moment to see, um, especially, you know, when, when people have all been vaccinated for a while, as, as myself and my parents have, you know, to be able to exercise some freedoms around that is fantastic. But so one of the reasons we, we have you on today is to talk about not, not so much what's happening with regards to vaccinations in Australia, but what's happening around the world. And this is sort of in, in line with your role as executive director of MICA. So my understanding is that a new report's come out called The Shot of Hope, Australia's Role in Vaccinating the World. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so we've been running a campaign, uh, we being MICA Australia, which is uh, a lot of the big... Uh, aid agencies. So we've been running a campaign called End COVID for All. And we said we really need the experts' voices. How are we doing vaccinating the world? So it was the Burnett Institute, the Allied Global Health Institute, which is, you know, Melbourne Uni, and uh, that remarkable uh, Melbourne set of uh, Allied Health uh, Research Centres there. We're very blessed. Shot of Hope's the result. It said, look, we're not doing very well. Less than 2.5% of the world's population. We're in poor countries vaccinated. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not doing very well because we promised with the COVAX facility, the International Global Fund, to uh, have uh, at least 1.1 billion, 1.4 billion of the world's poor vaccinated by the end of this year. It's about 330 million only that we've got to. Mm. Uh, so it really highlighted the challenge and and why we haven't got there really. Mm. I mean, when I look at some of the numbers, uh, you know, with regards to many of the countries, especially in Africa in particular, and look at some of the percentages of vaccinations, they're in they're in the sub ten percent range. The majority of them. I mean, we're we're getting excited here because you know many of our our states are starting to hit the you know seventy to eighty percent mark. But these these entire countries are generally sub ten percent. Some of them sub sort of two or three percent. Exactly. Uh, as the report shows, there's at least 10 African countries that won't be vaccinated until the end of 2030. Um, and it, it, it's not just over in Africa. We know that in New Guinea, yep. uh, PNG, it's up to about 1.5% uh, that have been vaccinated, and that's four kilometres of water across the tor- from the Torres Strait Island. So our back door is wide open. Um, so uh, this report, Shot of Hope, really said we can do it. We can not vaccinate 90% of the world's population by the end of next year. It will take 50 billion 
US dollars uh, coming from rich nations. Australia's share of that will be an extra 250 million, plus at least uh, another 20 million vaccines that we donate. So it pitched uh, a moonshot to say, after all the rhetoric of, uh, yep, we're all in this together. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it's fractured on, on the predictable lines. Wealthy big pharma companies with wealthy uh, uh, d- uh, governments, Western governments, buying it all up, hoarding it, and the poor nations missing out. And we've got to name this and... Uh, and um, and have a game plan to address it. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I keep thinking about, though, here is that, you know, I, I can understand, you know, certain countries behaving as they always have and being completely selfish with regards to their economic and other interests and, you know, producing these vaccines, keeping them to themselves and so forth. But even if you track that and you look at completely just at self-interest, the idea of having vast numbers of... Um, of, you know, huge populations in other parts of the world completely unvaccinated, letting this virus sort of essentially run free. Sooner or later, there is a chance, and you know, it's not a definite, but there is a chance that some of these variants that we're seeing, like the Delta variant, will come back and bite us on the butt. I, I mean, how is it that we're not seeing this, even if we're completely self-interested? You know, and we shouldn't be looking at it that way, but even if we were, it seems to me a foolish endeavour not to help to vaccinate the rest of the world. Yes, yeah, so Shot of Hope, this report interviewed uh, epidemiologists in 28 developing or poor nations who said exactly what you just said. Our unvaccinated people will become your nightmare mm. because the mutant strain um, will actually eventually reach you. Uh, what we know is an invisible biological virus has shown us that the whole world is connected, utterly interdependent, utterly vulnerable. Now, what you just said is where the world was in March last year, Mm. literally the world said uh, when I set up the COVAX facility, actually, we know we've got to do this for everyone. And that's why 140 nations signed up and where there was this idea that the COVAX facility is a global public good. And it's like the commons, we the global commons. So that, that vision has been there. Mm. And then what kicked in? Uh, vaccine nationalism. And, of course, we're going to protect our own. And apart from anything else, they're the only ones that ever vote for us. So whatever we might have said about helping others who are poorer, well, that's way down the uh, priorities. Yeah. Now, one of the things uh, I was chatting to a colleague here at Triple R app before um, before we came to air, and you know, I just mentioned you were coming on to, to to talk to us about this, was the idea of you know we were trying to think of what Australia is for at the moment. You know, what Australia is really aspiring to do, and and to me, we have this capability in our CSL you know manufacturing facilities and so forth, which is you know hard earned, hard fought. You know, incredible workloads for many of the staff there to give us this capability over the last 12 months. My understanding, and I could be wrong here, is that we're not scaling it up, but we're scaling it back. And yep. I I find this 
just untenable as a moral position when when we have the problem that you're discussing and not not just you know on the other side of the world but even in our near neighbors when we do have a and i and i understand this has been a vaccine you know the astrazeneca vaccine that's been absolutely harpooned by our media and various agencies but it is a solid vaccine that we're show you know is showing incredible efficacy and 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 long long-term value and yet we're we're taking this path it it seems extraordinary yeah, absolutely right. So the announcement that uh, they're not uh, giving any more contracts to CSL to make the AZ made here in Melbourne profoundly shocked me. Hmm. It is the opposite of what we are recommending in Shot of Hope. Why? Because when we actually got it going, the promise was, and it was true, we can be an engine of pumping out the vax for our region. Think of Myanmar with less than 5%. Think of Vietnam. Uh, This is the best goodwill statesmanship that we can do. And when when I heard the announcement that when the run run of vaccines, this run's done at uh, CSL, that's it, all over, I, I couldn't believe it. I was in shock and disbelief. It was against everything we'd said. Uh, it makes no sense. It takes away the one ace card we had for saying to our region, see, we don't just care about ourselves, mm. you're the priority, being the engine pumping it out. And look, apart from anything else, AZ, yep, you're right, it was given a reputation like hemlock here in Australia through terrible uh, miscommunications. But it doesn't need to be uh, transported at minus 70 like other vaccines. Mm. So for all countries, it is the answer. And here we have it. We're making it. And we're shutting it down. I don't know what has taken possession of Greg Hunt and the government. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me the sort of thing, you know, I, I, I've, you know, I, I realise that Australia has had its moments lately where we're, that we're not proud of. But I, I remember the response when, um, you know, the tsunami hit in Aceh in, in Indonesia. And I remember the response when there was the, the floods in, in Brisbane. And this seems like another one of those moments where I, I would imagine the Australian public would be, you know, financially behind. Um, and not every, I understand some people are struggling at the moment, but for, for the vast majority, financially behind a decision to spend money to to do exactly this um, and, and use those capabilities to help those who can't who can't manufacture it themselves. But but instead, we're we're starting to talk now about boosters. You know, we're back yeah. to you know giving ourselves third doses, which which I get that. Well, okay, there's a, there's a group of immune compromised people for which this is an absolute must, and it must happen soon. But for the majority of us, I think you know we're getting ahead of the queue a little bit there in terms of need. And and personally, I would rather hold off. You know, this is just me, but I would rather hold off on the booster myself if it meant someone who had no access to a vaccine at all was getting theirs. Precisely. Look, the. Uh the immorality, and I use that word, immorality of this, is that we are getting boosters. Uh, Greg Hunt saying we'll be the second after Israel to do it. When over 5,000 frontline workers in poor countries have died because they couldn't get one. Uh, that is immoral. And if we were getting boosters, whilst we had kept our promises to the world's poor uh, and uh, contributed our fair share, which is at least another $250 million, and was still pumping out AZ from CSL here saying uh, it's it's coming. 
Instead, we've had lots of promises. We're going to give 20 million from our own stock and secure another 20 million of vaccines and send them. But it's only been about 4 million that have actually been sent. Mm. And uh, uh, the truth is, we snap it up. You might remember we were at one point getting vaccines from Poland and getting vaccines from London. And, and most Australians are going, how, how, how did we do that? Well, we actually are rich. Yeah. <laughs> no, no sparing the money. Uh, but those are vaccines that could have gone to, uh, to Uganda, which is in terrible trouble, or other places. Yeah. So, Tim, um, just to finish up, you, you've got the report out now. What's, what's the sort of hopeful next stage? I mean, obviously, a turnaround in CSL's production would be a great first step. But what, what are you guys hoping to achieve with the report at this point? So we're having uh, negotiations with the government saying, um, particularly around the booster, you really have to step up. Uh, and it's, it's you know, the International Development Minister, Zed Zazelja, when he saw the report, was actually welcoming of it. He said, well, you've mapped in a more detailed way than what we had actually understood, you know, ourselves about our contribution. So we're going to be doing advocacy to see Australia... Uh, uh, shoulder a bit of the burden, and we hope they will. Yep. Well, Tim, look, great talking to you. I hope you have some success there. People who follow me on, on Twitter, the poor buggers, know I've been going on about this for over a year now. I think there is <laughs> a you. you know there's a great opportunity for Australia to, to come out and for people to look back 10 years and, and be proud of the fact that we've contributed not just our share, but you know potentially well in excess of our share, given we have manufacturing capabilities. So thanks so much, Tim. Uh, good to chat to you. Delight to be with you. All the best, Shane. Thank you. Folks, uh, we're going to take a break for some music. That was Reverend Tim Costello, the Director of Ethical Voice and the Executive Director of Micah Australia, talking about what is, I think, a very, very important and um, you know, immediate need for us to take the moral high ground here and start uh, making as much of these vaccines as we possibly can here and shipping them to nations that need them. Anyway, uh, that's me on the soapbox for today. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment. Uh, Dr. Lauren and Gracie are coming back. We're going to talk about some of the amazing stuff that we find in the deep ocean. Triple R. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Blar. I'm Dr. Shane. Uh, I think still coming out of lockdown. Uh, I don't know who I am these days. It's hard to tell. On the line with us is uh, Dr. Lauren. Hey, Lauren. Hello. Hello. I'm still here. Uh, we're getting a little bit of an echo there for a second, but uh, we're good. And Gracie, uh, all the way from Texas. I'm amazed that we have the technology to do this. Yes, hello. I'm also still here. <laughs> <laughs> Very good to see. Now, uh, Gracie, some of our uh, listeners, hopefully, if they were tuned in a couple of weeks ago, would remember you were starting your little tour of some of the weird and wonderful things that you find in the deep, deep ocean. And I think I may have admitted that my my you know ninety percent of my knowledge of this region of the Earth comes from the TV show The Octonauts, and you've been filling in some of the other details that um, that you know I don't have. Is that true for you too, Lauren? I was so bad. To, I was just thinking the exact same thing. Yeah. As soon as you said that, I just thought of all the cartoon characters. Yeah, yeah. I'm you know, sure it's... that's not what's under there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, Gracie, do tell. Yeah, so just to give a little bit of a recap from last time. So a few weeks ago, we talked about how the deep sea, as opposed to just the regular sea, uh, is anything deeper than 200 meters. Um, and we talked about three kind of main environmental factors that have 
led to some interesting adaptations. And those were, one, it's really cold um, at about four degrees Celsius. Two, it's really dark. Uh, that one doesn't really need a whole lot of explanation there. Uh, and three, the pressure is really high. So it increases by one atmosphere for every 10 meters of water you go down. So 200 meters deep means the pressure is 20 times greater than at the surface. And for context, humans can only withstand about three or four atmospheres of pressure. So we can only go down about 30 to 40 meters deep. Mm. Um, and then we also talked about some adaptations like bioluminescence used by anglerfish and hatchetfish. Um, to, to either attract food or avoid predators. And so today we'll talk about a few more adaptations and kind of interesting creatures like the blobfish, uh, the peacock mantis shrimp, and the vampire squid. Very good. They all have such cool names. They do, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Great names. Yeah, so the first one that we'll talk about is called the blobfish. And many people have heard of the blobfish because it's often been called the ugliest animal on Earth. I think it was officially voted so, uh, I think back in like 2015 or something. Um, also, if you're on Twitter, I posted an animated GIF of it. Um, and it's literally what it sounds like. Uh, it literally, literally looks like a blob. Uh, because the pressure is so high, a lot of creatures don't have muscles or bones. Um, so instead, its whole body is gelatinous. And most fish also have an air sac that keeps them buoyant. Uh, but again, because the pressure is so high, where it lives, blobfish don't have that. And so its density is just under what uh, the density of water is so that it can float around the seafloor and catch food as it floats toward them. Uh, and so they're thought to actually be completely still most of their lives. Uh, and instead of having scales like a normal fish, they mostly have really flabby skin. I think it's it's really interesting, Gracie. I hadn't thought about that, but normal fish are a lot heavier than water. Is that right? Um, and so hence they do have that air, air sort of capacity within them to, to keep them buoyant. Whereas you're saying yes. that, yeah, the blobfish is actually pretty much the exact same density as water. So it can just hang there and, you know, paddle up, paddle down, forward and back, you know, whatever it needs. But it doesn't sink or, or rise to the surface because its density is identical or pretty much identical. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yes. So it doesn't need that air sac hmm. to kind of help it be buoyant, which is really cool. Um, exactly. And also... I didn't know this, uh, but it makes sense now when I think about it. It actually looks relatively normal when it's in its own high-pressure, deep-water environment. You can find images just by Google searching, you know, blobfish, normal environment. Um, and the reason it actually looks so strange to us is because we take photos of it when it's completely decompressed um, in our own environment up at the surface. And so to us, it just looks like a pile of goo with the face. But when it's in its own environment... Of high pressure, it actually looks like a normal fish. <laughs> That's funny. I, I think uh, everyone everyone has that. Uh, hopefully, has seen what these things look like, or, or apparently look like. And yeah, they do just look like some weird jellyfishy like thing with a with eyes on it. Which um, you think, yep, ugliest fish. Yep, it, it's been inappropriately uh, marked with that that branding. I think, which is just so unfair. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Some people say that it's so ugly it's cute and so it kind of reminds me of somebody that was on 20 phds in 20 minutes i think it was the last session or mm -hmm. the session before where she talked about um basically wanting to give uglier animals quote unquote uh kind of more attention for funding yeah because um, it tends to be all the cute animals that get that gets you know funding yeah. and it's a, there's such stuff. a bias there too because you know we're, we're determining it's uh it's ugly in our environment i i'm pretty sure that if we were in its environment, we'd look pretty bad too. Is that exactly? Yeah, we wouldn't look good in that depth. We'd be looking pretty bad. So yeah, no. yeah, yeah. 
Tracy, so I have a question. Sorry. Yes. Um, so no, go if, ahead. If, if that doesn't have any muscles or bones or anything like that, how does its mouth work? Like, to, I'm just thinking to actually eat and open and close. Do you have any idea how that would work? That's a great question. I actually didn't see anything on that. Um, I did see that basically it can kind of just float around the sea bottom and it does say that it eats crustaceans. So I would think that there would have to be some sort of thing that it would do to open and close its mouth. But yeah, that's a great question. Because I guess it it does look like such a sort of lazy animal. It might just literally float around with its mouth open and just wait for things to float on in. Yeah, maybe. That's That's a good idea. Now I'm going to have to go look at it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great question. And then the next one on the list is the vampire squid. Have y'all heard of that? Yeah. But again, because I've watched the octonauts. There we go. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you haven't heard of them before, they can grow up to a foot long and they're kind of a reddish brown color. Um, and they're called vampire squid because between its eight arms, it has skin that connects them kind of like a cape. Uh, and underneath that cape, kind of on the underside, uh, they have a lot of little spiny projections. Um, and it's also a bioluminescent squid. Uh, so just as a reminder for last time, bioluminescence is that kind of that natural ability of some plants and animals to create light through a chemical reaction in their bodies uh, with luciferin. Specifically, that's the, mo- the molecule and it reacts with oxygen to produce light. Um, and vampire squid are actually neither a squid or an octopus. Um, because it has no feeding tentacles and it eats zooplankton, um, it's actually put into its own order called Vampyromorphidia. Hmm. I, pro- I had to practice that like 10 times. Um, Good job. <laughs> thanks. Well, luckily you're uh, talking, have- uh, I was just going to say, lucky you're talking to me and Lauren and we know that you said it correctly. <laughs> yes, there we go. Yeah. Could have said whatever I wanted. Pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and they also have ear-like fins that help them swim kind of like the Dumbo octopus that we talked about last time. Um, and they also have what are called filaments, which are kind of like octopus tentacles. Um, and it, those are almost completely covered by what are called photophores, um, which are kind of like bioluminescent cells that are capable of producing flashes of light that disorient their prey and their predators. And these can last from seconds to minutes, which is kind of astounding. And it can also change the intensity and the size of the photophores. Um, so it can basically just give off this kind of like light show to distract uh, either prey or predators. Um, and also what's really cool is that their filaments can regenerate if they're bitten off. Uh, which is really interesting. That's amazing. Um, it also can't change its skin color uh, like a lot of other octopi can, which makes sense if you think about it because it would probably be pretty useless in this super dark environment, right? Um, and so to combat the high pressures in the deep sea, their metabolic rate is actually the lowest for their mass of all other cephalopods. So cephalopods are just like squids, mollusks, um, octopus. Um, and then they also have gills that have a super large surface area. So those are some of the things that they've used to kind of cope with that high pressure environment. Mm. I mean, the, yeah, go learn. Sorry, I keep cutting everyone off to them. Apologies, Dr. Shane. Um, you, I'm just intrigued by those spines that you were talking about, Gracie, um, underneath. And I'm imagining vampire teeth. But <laughs> what are they for, those spines underneath? Yeah, so actually, um, I was just about to get to that, actually. So that's a great segue. Um, so also, like a lot of deep sea cephalopods, they actually don't have ink sacs. You know how typically you think of an octopus, if it gets scared, it kind of juts out, you know, ink, and then it kind of swims away. So instead, if they're disturbed, they act actually reach all their arms outwards around their body over their head so it turns itself inside out and it uses those spiny like projections as like protection essentially and it's really cute it's called the pineapple posture <laughs> that is great yeah Very cool mm. they can also instead of an ink 
that they eject, they could actually eject uh, kind of this bioluminescent cloud of sticky mucus, and it mm. remains lit for about 10 minutes and just kind of floats around, so it distracts uh, the predator. Um, and the glowing ink can actually stick to the predator as kind of an alarm system, too, so that the vampire squid knows and kind of can can follow where it went. I, I, um, I love the fact that the um, just the level of warfare at this depth mm-hmm. is so, like, you know, ramped up compared to um, in the shallower regions. Like if if, if some, I don't know if, whether this happens. Maybe it doesn't happen. But if, if something from the shallows sort of heads down, they don't know what they're in for. <laughs> you know, they're, they're, they're camouflaged, their sight, all those things, no good at all. <laughs> you know, like down in this deep area, it is a different series of uh, a completely different series of games that they play. That yeah, just mind blowing, mind blowing. And it seems like all of the animals at that depth have all of these adaptations. So are there are there any that we know of that really don't? Or are they all do they are they all sort of in this super warfare mentality? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure. I I would think that they're they probably wouldn't survive if they didn't. Mm-hmm. Just because of thinking about they would still have to kind of cope with that cold environment, that dark environment, that kind of high pressure environment. But yeah, that's a great question. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if there are any that are just kind of normal, quote-unquote, mm, mm. animals. Yeah. So what else have we got down there, Gracie? Yeah, so we actually have the peacock mantis shrimp next, which is technically not a deep-sea creature because it only lives in depths of up to 40 meters at the deepest. However, they're still really cool, and I thought they were close enough, so we're going to talk about them. Um, and so these are really colorful little shrimp uh, that technically aren't shrimp, actually, because shrimp are omnivores. Instead, they're actually carnivorous crustaceans. Hmm. Um, so they actually eat other meat. Um, and they can be anywhere from about one to seven inches long. Um, and they're really small but mighty. Um, have you have y'all heard of the peacock mantis shrimp before and its amazing abilities? I've heard of the mantis shrimp, and I've had uh, some personal experiences with those in my aquariums over the years. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So we'll get to that a little bit later, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, but they're, they're really small but really mighty. So they actually punch their prey at over 95 kilometers per hour. Um, or if you're one of my American friends and don't understand that metric, it's 50, 50 miles per hour. Uh, so 50 times faster, basically, than us blinking our eyes. So it's like super speed. Um, and they're actually the fastest punchers of any animal that exists. Uh, so the, the punches actually cause bubbles to form and creates heat of up to 8,500 degrees Fahrenheit. Whoa. Um, yeah, so it's pretty crazy. So you also may think to yourself, how does the peacock mantis shrimp not harm itself while it's giving these punches? Um, so the surface of its claws are actually made of this really strong material called hydroxyapatite. Um, and it basically resists fractures and can break glass tanks. Mm. Uh, so kind of alluding to what you were saying about your aquarium experience. Um, and when I was looking into this, I saw something really specific that said they can break through aquarium tanks and split open human thumbs. So I feel really bad for whoever had to find that out firsthand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I found out that I, you know, I realized that I had one in because you can hear this this sound um, from the tank late at night. You can hear this sort of like a, like a you know, like a, a thumping sound, you know, almost um, a clicking sound from, from these shrimp doing their thing. And wow. once you find you've got that in your tank, it's, uh, it's trouble. You've got to work out how to get that thing out. And I did a lot of Google searching on working out how to, how to capture these things and, and um, take them out and put them somewhere else. And in the end, what I used, and, you know, this is, a, this is an Australian solution, but we have this brand called Coddy's Cordial, 
And this particular cordial bottle, you know, if you put some food in it, a little bit of string around the handle, you could get the mantis shrimp into there late at night. And it took a lot of patience, but I managed to move my, my little mantis shrimp to another location where they were less likely to destroy my fish tank. So, yeah. Yeah. They're really hard to catch. They're wow. really smart. Well, that sounds... Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a much safer solution than trying to pick it up with your bare hands. I'm not doing so. that. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, no. Uh, they also have really advanced vision um, because while humans, we only have one pupil, which is like the black circle in the center of your eye. Um, peacock mantis shrimp actually have three pupils stacked on top of each other, and each one of its eyes has its own depth perception as well. So they can see light on both ends of the spectrum that we can't see, so the ultraviolet and infrared as well. Geez, if you're, um, you know, if you're into the eyes, if that was your area of study, I don't know why you'd bother with humans. What, why is that? <laughs> Lauren, I mean, why do you, you know? I must admit, every time I read about mantis shrimp vision, I'm just like, we're, we're just useless as humans. We really are. <laughs> but it is very cool. Like some of the studies that they do to look at mantis shrimp vision is really interesting because obviously, uh, yeah, th- that spectrum of vision that they can see is so broad that they can actually do some very cool kind of visual acuity tests. So rather than getting the, mm. the shrimp to read letters on a chart, they can actually set up these cool stimuli to show that it's um, very interesting work. Yeah, very cool stuff. Yeah, well, maybe we can have some mantis shrimp lenses someday. Yeah, that's you know, right. That's could, right. Yeah, give us some some more insight. That would be really cool. Very cool. Um, in 2018, a study actually came out uh, that revealed kind of the mechanisms behind how the mantis shrimp can punch so powerfully. Um, because obviously, shrimp don't have very big muscles, right? So peacock mantis shrimp kind of give a new meaning to calling someone a shrimp, like it's an insult to their strength, for sure. Um <laughs> But researchers actually found out that they have kind of the spring-loaded anatomy, kind of similar to like a mousetrap, where the shrimp's muscles will pull on kind of a saddle-shaped structure in its arm, um, which kind of bends and stores energy until it swings its claw forward, which kind of releases that energy. Um, And more specifically, it's called like a latch-like mechanism. Um, And there are several other animals with latch-like mechanisms, like frogs' legs uh, whenever they jump or chameleons' tongues whenever they're trying to catch prey. Uh, But what makes the peacock mantis shrimp so unique, though, is that there's only a one millisecond delay between the unlatching and the snapping, um, which researchers have figured out with ultra high speed cameras. Uh, And for other animals, it's a lot longer of a delay. Um, So going back to the mousetrap, instead of it snapping right away, you can picture this kind of the slight delay. And whatever the mechanism is that's causing that delay, researchers haven't quite been able to figure that out yet. Um, but an article actually just came out three weeks ago where researchers at Harvard have built a tiny little robot to mimic the peacock, peacock mantis shrimp's punch so they could study it in more detail, which is very cool. Yeah, that's fascinating stuff, isn't it? Hmm. Yeah, this was also the same group behind the RoboBee. I don't know if y'all heard, heard oh, of yeah, that yeah. whenever yep, it yep. came out a few years ago. Yep. Yeah, so the RoboBee, um, it's basically kind of the first like untethered, smallest little uh, kind of autonomous robot. Um, which is very cool. Hmm. Um, I'm so glad my kids aren't listening to this right now, Gracie, because they'd be like, I want that for Christmas. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's great. Such great technology. Hmm. Yeah, it looks it's very cool. It's about the size of a quarter or less. Hmm. So it, it is, in the true sense, like a shrimp scale kind of a robot. Yeah. Um, and actually, the robot isn't quite as powerful as the mantis shrimp in actuality. It's still, they did tests in air and in water. Um, and in air, they could get the punch to reach about 26 meters per second, which is just under what a mantis shrimp 
could do in water. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if you can imagine in water, you have to push through a heavier mass. And so they're still working on kind of getting that up and running. Um, but a study last year actually found that mantis shrimp can punch at half the speed when they're in air, suggesting that it could potentially even control its striking behavior, whether it's in water or in air. Um, so okay. the researchers hopefully you can extend this process kind of to other animals to help scientists develop some applications as well. Yeah. Uh, look, it's fascinating uh, stuff. I just find if you think about the evolution of these creatures, like at what, you know, what stages were required to evolve this thing into something that has this almost, you know, faster than speed of sound type uh, punch that it can destroy other animals with. It's just um, mm-hmm. phenomenal. I think um, one that we talked about some time ago now on the show, but there was a snail um that we talked about that had a particular uh toxin that you know essentially anesthetized its um its prey but it was the fastest one that we'd found as humans in terms of the speed with which it um, worked which makes a bit of sense you know you're a snail something fast moving goes past you want to incapacitate that before it gets too far away from you otherwise it's going to take you a couple of days to get to your you know your kill so you know these, yep. these <laughs> which makes some sense so you know just incredible adaptations that we see in these regions to to keep these things alive gracie it's been great hearing about all this stuff and um amazing we're gonna we're gonna take a, a very short break for some uh, station announcements folks and we'll be back in a moment to continue our chat with uh dr lauren and gracie in just a moment triple r Yeah, you are listening to Triple R. We're just uh, finishing up the show in a few minutes. Uh, you're listening to Einstein and Gogo. But, uh, Dr. Lauren, I wanted to just have a brief chat with you and a, and a bit of a chat to some of the parents out there listening at the moment because I'm not sure what situation you're in exactly. Uh, your kids are a little younger than mine, but I have a 9-year-old and a 14-year-old who are going back to school on Tuesday, or at least they are meant to go back on, to school on Tuesday. And I think uh, listeners of the show know we've had a few discussions about this over the last sort of month. We've had some experts like uh, Sharon Goldfeld from the Royal Children's Hospital and Margie Danchin also from from the RCH in to talk about this um, scenario of return to school and yeah, you know, I, I I will admit one of my children is um, vaccinated. In fact, he'll be fully vaccinated by the end of the day, which is a a great um, a great achievement, which I'm pretty happy about. Um, but the other one, the nine year old, of course, is not. Uh, and so I'm in this sort of state that I suspect a lot of parents are probably in and you know it's okay to kind of admit this where you know I, I don't feel overly comfortable and uh, to be perfectly honest to everyone listening I haven't completely decided what I'm going to do and mm-hmm. you know because it's a relatively short period um, you know I'd be sending him back to school more for the social engagement element rather than anything else but I'm not mm-hmm. completely finalized on my on my decision with regards to him because most of the information that I've gotten with regards to kids and COVID and so forth uses the term most children blah 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 mm-hmm. and yeah. my son hasn't been most children so far in his life mm-hmm. and so you know yeah. there's that element of well whenever I hear most children I just hear everyone else um, yep. And I don't hear him, and I think there's probably a lot of parents who are in a similar situation. What What's your your take on it, Dr. Lauren? Yeah, no, it's very interesting. We've had lots of similar discussions. So yeah, my, my I don't really have to face this yet. My kids are preschool age, mm. um, but it is a really challenging one. And I think um, we've had a few chats about this, Dr. Shane. That it's really important that we have these open discussions and let parents know that I think all parents are feeling a bit nervous. Mm. Um, so yeah, look for me, I am just very excited about the chance for my kids to get vaccinated when it's safe but you know i want it to be shown to be safe so i'm waiting for the official advice on that 
But I think, yeah, there definitely needs to be some some clear um, strategies in place for, for how we can get our kids back safely into the schools. Yeah, and I, I suspect there's um, there's a lot of thinking going on I know around the mental health of kids and there is absolutely no doubt in my mind that the last 18 months have been tough, not just for kids but also for their, their parents and for other family members, friends, the whole lot. And that's, you know, this has really been rough. Um, we are very close to the end of the, the school year. We, you know, keeping in mind the vaccination rate for kids under 12 is, what is it? It's 0%. Um, so they are, you know, they're the ones who potentially will be experiencing, you know, some some concerns there. I think, you know, the data seems to indicate that kids, uh, you know, even if they are getting sick, they're, it's very mild yes. um, for the majority of kids. You know, I think we have to always be careful. I I have a my sort of principle around this is that the more the more arrogant and preachy the person is giving me the information, the less likely it is I'm gonna hear it. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably true for a for a lot of people. And what I would like to see more of is um the, the sort of communication we see from people like Margie Danton actually, where people listen more yeah. than they speak. And I, I would, yeah. yeah. I was just about to mention her. Look, I, I think there's some amazing research coming out from the, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute and obviously Margie and, and her team. And um, that's really what I'm relying on at the moment. So I really am following them very closely and, and looking at the studies that are coming out. I think we're, we're very privileged in Australia as well in that, you know, we, we are able to see what's happening around the world mm. in other areas too, in other countries. And so I'm also really closely watching that and seeing what the experiences have been overseas and that's why, personally, I'm quite excited about kids getting vaccinations because it does seem like it's working very well. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're spoiled to have the MCRI in, in Victoria, that's for sure. Yeah. One, one of the things I, I um, sort of been reflecting on lately, too, is just the huge variation in capabilities between various schools. And, you know, a, a few, it was interesting a few weeks back when we had Margie and others on, we had a school principal and from a private school. And during the week before, I, I had a very stressful week and I, I attempted to get a, a public school principal on and didn't get to um, be able to do that and wanted it to be very clear in that show, actually, that, you know, that was a gap um, that we had there. But, um, you know, when you look at schools in especially the west and, and north of um, of Melbourne, you know, some of the financial capabilities of those schools to do the sort of adaptations that we've thrown at them in a very short space of time it is going to be very difficult. We're also approaching hay fever season, which I know for my son is, you know, even when all the windows are shut, is a bad time. Um, so mm-hmm. there's going to be a lot of families that are struggling with that as well because the number of people who actually, you know, suffer from hay fever in, in Melbourne is extraordinarily high. So, you know, and, and that and hay fever symptoms aren't quite COVID symptoms, but there's some overlap mm-hmm. in certain places, you know, that it's, it's going to be tricky. So I think, um, yeah, are you are you back in the clinic and back, you know, in those sorts of spaces, Lauren? Yeah, we are. So we're, we're sort of um, in a bit of an interesting time where we are sort of doing our interventional clinical trials. Mm. So if we've got things running where people have had treatments and things like that, that's continuing on. But a lot of the work I do is looking at the natural history of eye diseases and how they change over time. And so all of that's stopped um, and so that's really, I mean, everyone's research has been yeah. damaged by the pandemic, but it's particularly hard for those sort of natural history studies because we're missing data now from a two-year period, really. And so that's quite heartbreaking for us. But look, we're, we're slowly getting back into it. Um, obviously, when we see research participants now, it's full PPE. We've got, you know, face shields and masks yeah. and the whole lot, which again is not great for anyone, but 
it's the safest thing to do. Yep. Now, just in the last uh, 40 seconds before we go, Gracie, I understand that you have uh, received a bit of good news in the last week with um, your first uh, grant. Yes. So I received a grant from a national organization in prosthetics. So I'm really excited about starting that study pretty soon. Excellent. Well, congratulations. It's good to hear. I mean, you're a PhD student. You're already getting grants. This is a this is a great outcome. Well done. Thank you. I'm super excited. Well Thank done. You. Excellent. Folks, we're going to have to hand over to the team from Eat It in just a moment. Uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gago. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Shane RRR. So uh, pretty easy to remember that one, I think. And uh, until next week, we are going to have to say goodbye. It's been good chatting to you and i hope that uh, you're all having a bit of relaxation and reconnecting with family and friends and so forth now that melbourne is out of lockdown um, but remember to stay vigilant because there are a very large number of cases wandering around the city and we are not by any stretch of the imagination out of this yet so mask up get vaccinated if you're not vaccinated already and take good care i'm dr shane remember science is everywhere and we will chat to you again with more science next week hi this is dr shane Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.